This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, American Furies, Crime, Punishment, and Vengeance in the Age of Mass Imprisonment, our guest today, Sasha Abramsky, finds that prisons have dumped their age-old goal of rehabilitation, often for political reasons. The new ideal, unknown to most Americans, is a punitive mandate marked by a drive toward vengeance. Abramsky has written for The Atlantic, The Nation, and Rolling Stone, the author of Cond and Hard Time Blues, He's also reported on U.S. prisons for Human Rights Watch. Sasha Abramsky, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on. How, how are you today? What's it like up in uh, Sacramento? Uh, it's beautiful, it's sunny, and it's warm. All I'm right. very happy. Well, good. <laughs> Great. Well, let's get right into it here. What, how would you, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 or a, or a grading uh, you know, bell curve, how would you rank the U.S. prison system compared with the rest of the world right now? Well, if... One is the worst and 10 is the best. You've got to put America right near the bottom. Now, obviously, it's not a third world country, so it doesn't have dungeons with 200 people in a, in, a, in a tiny little room. What it does have is this enormous and bloated system. It's got 2.2 million people in prison at this point. And what that means is, because numbers are often hard to um, visualize, but what that means is on any given day, one in 100 adults wakes up behind bars. Or to put it another way, if you were to coagulate all of the different prisoners and all of the different prisons around the country and put them in one space, you'd now have the third largest city in America after New York and Los Angeles. So we rank right near the bottom, not because our prisons are necessarily more brutal individually than in many countries, but because we're putting so many people through that prison system. And in doing so, what I'm arguing in my book is that in doing so, we're very, very profoundly altering the way our culture functions. That if you put that many people through a large, growing ever more brutal prison system, at the back end of that, those values and those experiences come back and they affect the whole of society, not just the people who've gone through the prison system. Do we have any idea, I know there are statistics out there, uh, as far as how many people are fel uh, felons or ex-felons or passed through the criminal system? It's a great question, and I, I wish there were numbers. The, the answer is nobody has accurately tracked exactly how many ex-felons there are in America. We know it's a large number. There are 2.2 million people who are behind bars at the moment. There's about 5 million more who are on parole, on probation. So that's 7 million right there. We know that most there are about 600,000 people a year who cycle through the system and are released back into the community. Um, the most conservative estimates, and these are all guesses at this point, but the most conservative estimates are that there are 10 to 12 million people in America with felony records. Um, what I, what I think is fascinating is that when you're looking for a cohesive national experience, a shared experience that a large percentage of Americans have gone through, it used to be the military. In the World War II days, it was the armed forces with this, this common experience through which people passed, which shaped their lives. There was a political momentum towards reforming the country based around those experiences. So the GI Bill, for example, was passed in the aftermath of the war. Today, the two experiences are, if you're middle class, you're going to go through the university system. You're going to have your life shaped by the um, experiences of two to four years in a college. If you're working class, and especially if you're a person of color, mm -hmm. an African-American or Latino in this country, 
you're now more likely to go to prison than to college. Now, what that means is that, in a sense, we're living in not one country but two countries, mm-hmm. and that if, if you're affluent, your life experience is going to be shaped by your ability to go to university. If you're poor, increasingly your life experience is going to be constricted by your likelihood that you're going to get arrested, get a felony record, go to prison, and have all the handicaps that come with a felony record at the back end of the sentence. So one of the things that I think is most important about this, as we're over-relying on the criminal justice system, and we're doing so in a way no other country on earth now does, as we're over-relying on the criminal justice system, it's increasingly fraying our social fabric. It's increasingly changing the way our economy functions, changing the way our relationships between classes and races function. To me, that's extraordinary because it's happening without public debate. It's mm. happening without people really being aware of the full, the full scale of this impact. You just touched on something that I think is important to, to talk about in terms of extending the experience that people go through who've been in the criminal, through the criminal justice system, which is on the back end. Uh, we continue to punish people um, once they're out of prison. How would you rate the United States in terms of the sort of after-prison experience for people, well, in terms of rehabilitation or whatever it is? Well, I, I, I guess I would sort of limit the ranking to other countries that are like us. So right, what I mean by right. that is countries that are affluent, countries that have a democratic yeah. political system, right. countries that have the expectations that go with a wealthy democracy. So if that's our peer group, we rank right near the bottom. And the reason I say that is we're the only country on earth or the only democracy on earth that not only removes the right to vote from someone while they're in prison, but in many, many states, in Florida, in Virginia, in Alabama, in a host of states, especially in the Deep South, that right is basically permanently lost. So you come out of prison, you come off of parole, you're paying taxes, you have a job, etc., etc., but you don't have any political rights. You have no say in who gets elected and who sets the laws that govern you as a citizen. Um, Now, in addition to that, one of the things that we did as a part of the quote-unquote tough-on-crime movement is we began taking away access to programs for people with a felony record. So if you come out of prison, just as a matter of public safety, whether you're left-wing or whether you're right-wing, whether you're liberal or conservative, you'd think you'd want that group of people to have access to drug treatment, to have access to medical care, housing, and so on, because otherwise you've got this floating underclass, this homeless, rootless criminally-minded underclass, let's say. And that's really dangerous because, as a matter of public safety, you want to do everything in your power to take away the incentive to commit crime. Now, instead, what we do in this country is we release people from prison, oftentimes from very, very harsh isolation unit environments where there's a whole host of mental issues that are generally um, produced in the prisoners. You release those prisoners onto the streets. You give them a few dollars. And we say now, as part of our Tough on Crime patter, if you like. We say you're not going to have access to public housing, especially if you're a drug felon. If anybody who does have access to public housing lets you stay with them, they can be evicted. You're not going to have access to welfare, to the temporary aid to needy families program and various other welfare programs. You're not going to have access to government education loans, and you're not going to have access to most forms of employment. And what I mean by that is most states now have limits. So if you're a felon, you can't get a job that requires a state license. And that can be everything from a teacher, all the way down to a barber or a mechanic. So we're making it harder and harder for this group of people to stay employed. We're making it harder and harder for them to find a housing. We're making it harder and harder for them to gain access to the kind of programs, including education, that might help them change their lives. And it's not a surprise that we have a very high recidivism rate. That's a technical term, but what it means is that a lot of people who go to prison and then get released 
within a very short period of time, are back in prison. They're either in prison because they committed new crimes, or they're in prison because, like in California, the state is very quick to violate them if they, in some way, in fact, the um, conditions of their parole. And so in California, the largest number of new prisoners in any given year are people who haven't committed new crimes, but they've broken their parole contract. And that's very, very dysfunctional because it costs a fortune. It costs about $50,000 a year in California per inmate to house them. It costs a fortune. It doesn't lower the crime rate. What it does is it creates this group of people at the bottom of the society who for most of their adult lives are going to be cycling in and out of the prison system. Costs a lot of money, doesn't reduce crime. And so in that sense, when you, when you ask where we rank compared to other countries, we're right near the bottom and we're getting worse because part of the whole power of the tough on crime movement is it proposes soundbite solutions. It proposes very, very simplistic solutions that sound good if you can express them in a few seconds. We're going to get tough on crime by taking away perks like education from criminals. The only problem with that is it's not really tough on crime. It's tough on criminals makes criminals' lives messier, nastier, meaner. But it doesn't actually deal with the problems that cause crime, and that's a fundamental difference. And I think until we as a society understand that difference, until we recognize that being tough on criminals isn't necessarily always the same as being tough on crime, we're A, going to have a big crime problem, and B, we're going to continue to cycle this group of people through the criminal justice system. Right. We are speaking with Sasha Bramsky. The book is American Furies. Crime, Punishment, and Vengeance in the Age of Mass Imprisonment. It, it, it is striking that it, w- the people who want to have a stake in, in, in community that would benefit us all, we are trying to drive further and further to the margins. Well, here in California, we had a, especially in the 60s, we were moving toward a progressive rehabilitation system. What exactly happened? How come we've completely flipped around here? Was there a point in time where we made that turn? I, I don't think there was a single point. I think there were a series of points and a series of cultural changes. And this happened not just in California. It happened around the country. And one of, one of the things I explore in my book is the idea that historically, and I'm going back all the way to the origins of the American Republic, for the last 200, 250 years, there's been this debate, a very fiercely fought argument, between proponents of rehabilitation and proponents of revenge. And these are very, very deep philosophical arguments about the role of the state and the role of religion, the role of society. They're arguments about what a person is, whether a person is a redeemable human being or whether a person is born good or bad. And they're they're very deep arguments. And over the last couple hundred years, depending on the broader culture, either reform has gained the upper hand or revenge has. Now, what I argue in my book is that over the last 40 years, increasingly, We've been in a moment where revenge has had the upper hand. And that's because we've been in a moment where we're shifting as a society in a much more conservative direction across the board, not just about criminal justice, but about how we deal with the poor, how we deal with the losers in a laissez-faire market system. We've become much less patient with people who can't survive in the kind of society that we have. We've become much more impatient of the mentally ill, of the drug-addicted of the homeless and so on. And as a result, we've criminalized an increasing amount of behaviors. So one of the sort of absolutely fascinating stories is how we deal with the mentally ill. If you go back 40, 50 years, we had half a million hospital beds in this country for the mentally ill. Now, the mental health institutions were not nice places. Nobody would say they were nice places. If you've seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, or, you'll know there was this whole whole sort of horror surrounding them. Or t- Titty Cut Follies, if you've ever seen that documentary. Yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. The, you know, these were not humane places, but at least they were places with a mandate to treat people. 
And then we shut down the mental health institutions. And instead of having half a million beds for the mentally ill, we now have 60,000. That's a 90% drop. And one of the things that happened is we were supposed to put money into a community mental health system. That, That was John F. Kennedy's promise when he began deinstitutionalization. And it never happened. The community mental health structures weren't developed. And the result is more and more mentally ill people ended up on the streets and ended up getting arrested, getting processed through the criminal justice system. And today, we have over half a million seriously mentally ill people living behind bars. So, you know, to me, that's an an absolutely visual example of the transformation in our priorities. We've gone from treating the mentally ill to incarcerating the mentally ill. You could say the same for drugs. One, One of the major elephants in the room, one of the biggest single reasons the prison population in America is now at 2.2 million is that we're incarcerating low-end drug dealers and low-end drug users in a way that almost no other country on earth does. Now, most, most countries, if they can catch a drug kingpin, will incarcerate that person. But very few countries will invest $50,000 a year incarcerating a neighborhood street dealer or a neighborhood drug user. And we're doing that in America at the moment. So I think part of what we're seeing is this massive conservative reaction in response to these pervasive social problems like mental illness and drugs. Um, But the other thing is we've just become much more intolerant of poverty. And I think in some ways, and I write about this in my book, in some ways 21st century America is very, very similar to mid-19th or late 19th century England. Mm. We're a very powerful country. We're a country devoted to the free market. And we're a country which is very dynamic in many ways. And for the people at the top of that society, it works wonderfully. But for the people at the bottom... Increasingly, we're a society like the Victorians, where the people at the bottom live in slums, work in sweatshops, often have very, very high infant mortality rates, very low life expectancy rates, and conditions are pretty terrible for the, for the poorest of the poor in our community. The Victorians had this phrase called less eligibility, and it was a whole philosophy worked out around the fact that the poor lived in these diabolical conditions. So how could you create prisons that were even worse? Because unless you did that, the Victorians feared that these prisons would become, if you like, rest stops for the, for the urban poor. They'd become soft touches where people could get three meals and a bed. The Victorians were terrified of that, so they created a whole philosophy around how to avoid it. They created make-work in their prisons. So you see pictures in mid-19th century London of prisoners in Pentonville working the treadmill, literally for hours on end, circling on the treadmill just to keep them busy. You see pictures of men and women in hoods. They would have to go around their prisons in hoods so they can never communicate with anybody else. Um, You have the slot bucket where prisoners would essentially have to go to the bathroom in their cell, in a bucket, and then the odor would stay with them all day and all night. And it was a carefully designed process, a very ritualistic process, designed to make prisons intolerable. And if you listen to the language of politicians today, one of the people I quote in my book is ex-governor of Massachusetts, William Weld, and he says that prisons should be akin to a walk through hell. And I thought this was this very evocative visual image, that the idea that in a society where the poor really have it pretty bad these days, You've got to make your prisons akin to hell in order to stop them being seen as soft touches. And I think that's very much what's happened at the moment. As our conditions have headed south for the poorest of the poor in the free world, it's not really a surprise that our prisons have also gotten worse and worse, more and more overcrowded, more and more brutal, more and more prone to these extraordinary spasms of violence. Because unless you have that, then you've got this real risk that people are just not going to be afraid of prisons. And I'm not, I'm not sure which that's more an indictment of. It's, I, I can't work out if that's more an indictment 
of our economy or if it's more an indictment of our prison system. But it seems to me that on both fronts, something very, very fundamental has gone awry in the last 10, 20, 30 years. We're speaking with Sasha Bramsky. The book is American Furies, Crime, Punishment, and Vengeance in the Age of imprison- Mass Imprisonment. Pardon me. Um, I, I want to ask you if there's a sort of a nexus here, uh, sort of a philosophical nexus. Uh, it's sort of a, is there this conservative political philosophy, conservative, I'd say opportunistic conservative, so-called conservative politicians, and racism and some kind of religious, is religion in some way factor into this? Yeah, well, well the, reli- the religion's absolutely fundamental to this. And again, I sort of said earlier that there's yeah. this ongoing debate between reform and revenge, and it goes all the way back to the colonial era. Right. And it, it's very much overlaid with a religious debate. The, the reformers are the Quakers on the Northeast. They're the people in, in Pennsylvania in particular who set up the earliest prisons in America. And wh- one of the weird things that I discovered in my research is that prisons a couple hundred years ago Today we think of them as these sort of very psychically dark places. But 200 years ago, prisons were one of the most extraordinary reformist liberal experiments in America. And it was one of the reasons people came from all over the world to see American democracy in action. De Tocqueville came here originally to look at its prison system. The reason for that was that most countries at the time relied much more on execution or on corporal punishment or on deportation. England was sending people to America, to the colonies, as convicts. When it couldn't do that anymore after independence, it began sending prisoners to Australia. To build prisons specifically to rehabilitate people, that was a radical departure. And it was a Quaker invention. And the, the, the old prisons on the East Coast, prisons like Eastern State in Philadelphia, which still exist today, this almost beautiful old stone turreted building in the heart of Philadelphia, the original prisons were this experiment in reform. And what happened is... In the South in particular, there was a reaction against that idea because these prisons were very, very expensive. And in the South, the taxpayers didn't want to fund a reform experiment. And they were backed up in this by their preachers. And the fundamentalist preachers said, it's not the job of man to redeem man. If God wants to step in and if God wants to salve, salve, give someone salvation, all, be, all well and good. But it's not the job of mankind to try and redeem his fellow fallen human beings. And there's always this religious tone there. Mm-hmm. And so your, your question as to whether or not the sort of swing back towards revenge is religiously motivated, I would say it's absolutely tied in with the rebirth of a very fundamentalist vision of Protestant Christianity in this country. Mm-hmm. It's very tied in with the reemergence of spokespeople like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, who have this very, very vengeful idea of what God is and what religion is. And their social solutions reflect this very vengeful religious belief. So definitely there's a religious element to the reemergence of vengeance. The second part, the idea of whether there's a racial element, it's almost impossible in this country to deal with any deep social problem or any deep policy question without looking at the issue of race. And that's because historically racism and the divisions of the races have been so powerful in this country. But it's also because those racial divisions play themselves out through class to a degree, that there are more black poor people and more Latino poor people because of the historical divisions in the country. Mm. And if you have policies, I mean, I, I don't think I would argue that today's policies are deliberately racist. Might be that it, in individual areas there are racist sheriffs or racist judges. I'm sure there are, 
But I wouldn't go so far as to argue the entire system is deliberately calibrated to be racist. But I would say that increasingly the system is serving a social control mechanism. It's serving to put dampers on these very explosive class divisions. And because the class and race overlap is so intense in this country, once the criminal justice system starts being used as a class control mechanism, inevitably it begins to be used in a racially discriminatory way. So what you see today are these absolutely extraordinary numbers. In many cities, one in four young African-American men are either in prison or jail on parole. In Florida, in Virginia, in Alabama, in Mississippi, throughout most of the South, one in four African-American men can't vote because they have a criminal justice involvement. Almost half of the prison population, not quite half, but almost half of the prison population is African-American. And, you know, these are absolutely extraordinary numbers. Now, I guess a complicating factor is here. I don't think there's a deliberate racial conspiracy, but I do think that there's an ability to turn a blind eye and that if we were looking at such staggering numbers, and these numbers involve young white people, the would, political leadership in this country would be up in arms. Exactly. It, w- it would be absolutely impossible to keep the war on drugs going the way it's played exactly. out. It would be absolutely impossible to disenfranchise people to the degree that they've been disenfranchised if the population that was impacted was white. So I, I do think race is an absolutely huge issue here, but not quite in the way that a sort of racial conspiracy might have it. Well, let, let me just say, in, in sort of this racial overtone to it, I, if I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most, most studies that are done of the rate of crime committed is pretty even across the board in terms of how many, what you people do, petty theft, auto theft, whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not up on the most recent numbers, but it's certainly the case. Across the board, and certainly drug use. Well, that, drug that's uses. what I was going to say. It's certainly the case. So, you, know, you, you so, have an image in this country when, if, if you watch Law and Order, if you watch The Wire, if you watch Cops, if you watch any number of um, yeah. TV shows involving crime and punishment, disproportionately the drug dealer is going to be a young African-American right, male. Right. And the, the public image is that the drug dealer is a young inner-city African-American man. And the reality is that all the data out there says whites are just as likely to use drugs as blacks, and whites are just as likely to deal drugs as blacks. Right. But what you do see is at every stage of the criminal justice system, whether you're talking about the arrest process, the the, um, trial process, or the sentencing process, African-Americans are dealt with more harshly. If you saw saw L.A. Sheriff's Department battering down homes in Brentwood with the the assault weapons or the assault vehicles, you would have a a public outcry, just as you described. Well, that's that's right. The, the, The war on drugs, and the war on drugs is set of policies involving how policing is conducted around drugs, how arrests are made, um, priorities and what kinds of arrests are made, and so on. The, right. the way the war on drugs has played out has disproportionately affected African Americans and Latinos. Every analysis shows that. Those, that goes for whether you're talking about analysis by a relatively conservative group like the Rand Corporation or a relatively progressive liberal group like the Center for Crim- Juvenile and Criminal Justice. All the studies show that the way the war on drugs plays out, it disproportionately impacts inner city street users and street dealers. And I think, you know, it, it, it mainly is allowed to continue because there's a public sense that this affects the other. The people who vote generally think this isn't something that's going to come into our communities and our neighborhoods. And I think you're right. You know, if, if you did have SWAT teams busting down the doors of middle-class suburban homes in Brentwood or in suburban New York or in Marin County, 
to go after drug dealers who lived in those communities or drug users who lived in those communities. Not only would there be an outcry, but within days there'd be a stampede to political reform. There'd be legislation put in place saying you can't do this. You can't break down doors in quiet middle-class neighborhoods going after drugs. Or at least if you do, you better have a a much better reason than simply a vague suspicion. To me, that says that it's economic rather than racial. Absolutely. I think this is about access to power. And, you know, in this country, the middle classes tend to have much more access to power and much more of a sense of political entitlement than the working poor, and that goes for whether the working poor are white, African-American, Latino, Asian, or anything else. In this country, even though we like to think we're a class-neutral society or, or a society that has transcended class, we're not. People have different access to economic force, different access to economic power, and because of that, different access to political power. And I think that's a very important lesson to be learned, that in a society as reliant as we are, of the criminal justice system to deal with entrenched social problems. It's going to play out economically. And because of our history, that means it's also going to play out racially. And, and, and we are so late here. In terms, we're we, not we've so got, late. Well, we've got, we, I just because there's one big question that we Go didn't ahead. get to, and I, 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 I know you won't have time. And that is, you, when you layer on top of all of that, we now have an economic system in place, the private industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, you layer all of that on top of this. Now there are economic incentives to put people and keep them in prison. That's right, and that's an absolute disjunct from good public policy. It might might not be good public policy for a law like three strikes to put a low-end offender, a shoplifter, a drug addict in prison for life. might cost the taxpayer a million dollars to do that, but it's very, very good for a whole bunch of business interests, and that, that's something called the prison industrial complex, right. I wish we had time to talk well, about which it. Which is and another whole thing, time. and then there's the whole thing with the prison guards and the political power that they now possess, and how all of that feeds into the system. Is there any hope on the horizon, or are we headed for hell here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are we well, all, walk, know, all going to walk like through hell? I never interview on a pessimistic <laughs> note, but I think there is hope. <laughs> yeah. I, I, actually, I actually think there's enough politicians who are now realizing if not the moral folly of this, at least the economic folly. There you go. And there are enough voters who are beginning to get really annoyed at their tax dollars going to build ever more prisons and ever more and fund ever more lucrative contracts for the prison guards union, for example. I do think there's hope, but I think this, we've got to understand something. This took 35 years to build. Yeah. We now have a series of institutions in place that cumulatively yeah. make up the biggest incarceration population on Earth. On Earth. And if, if it takes 35 years to build the biggest gulag on Earth, it's going to take many, many years to dismantle that, to create more sensible public policy, more sensible mental health programming, more sensible drug treatment in the community, and so on. But I do think over time, there's certainly at least a possibility that we're going to roll back this prison system and get a more sensible, more historically normal criminal justice system put in its place. Well, if, if uh, Arnold hadn't lied for the last 10 days of the Prop 66 campaign, we would have begun uh, to see some reform on three strikes, and he lied through his teeth for 10 days on TV, night and day. That's right. And we would have had 60, we had a 60 percent tile uh, approval rating on that until he and, and this guy Nicholas put in 10 million bucks. So there is hope. I know people, <laughs> I know there are people that, that want to reform this system, and Sasha Bramsky, I want to thank you so much for being here. The book is American Furies, Crime, Punishment, and Vengeance in the Age of Mass Imprisonment. Thank you. You're welcome. And can I, can I just add one thing? Sure. A lot, a lot of um, audience members have been phoning into radio shows and saying they can't spell my name and can't, oh, sure. can't find my book. Sure. Uh, my name is S-A-S-H-A, 
last name Zabramsky, A-B-R-A-M-S-K-Y. And if I was called Joe Smith, I wouldn't have to spell it. <laughs> and, and you have a website, and you can link to it from ours. Uh, so if you want to, we we'll, we'll make sure people get to you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you, Sasha, for being here. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.